0: Indie Hackers is a website that profiles independent developers who have made profitable software projects, usually without raising any money. These projects make anywhere from a few hundred dollars a month to more than a hundred thousand dollars a month, as in the case with park.io, one of the services that is profiled by indie hackers. I highly recommend going to check out the interview that Cortland Allen did with the founder of park.io. Cortland is the creator, engineer, and interviewer behind indiehackers.com. And for each business that is profiled by indie hackers, Cortland conducts a short interview with the founder. Cortland joins the show today to discuss the changing trends that are making it easier to bootstrap a software business if you're a capable developer. Or even if you are just a non technical person who understands how software works. We talked a lot about contract work, how that's getting better. Since Cortland and I are both in the business of interviewing engineers, we had a lot to talk about, and this is a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed talking to Cortland, and I hope he comes back on the show at some point. Cortland Allen is the founder of Indie Hackers. Cortland, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. What is your website? What is Indie Hackers? Indie
1: Hackers is a website that I started. Um, that I launched in August. Uh, I do interviews with various founders of online businesses, people who started apps, um, projects, businesses, and the one thing in common is that all of their projects are profitable. They make money. Um, so I interview these founders and I ask them how did they come up with the idea? How do they run their business? How do they do marketing, How do they make money? And I ask every single person to share exactly how much money they're making. So it's completely transparent in terms of revenue.
0: How would you define an indie hacker? What does that term mean?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I think of an indie hacker as someone who's independent either in terms of their funding, um, they're not necessarily responsible to investors, or someone who's independent in terms of it's just the way that they make money on their own. So for example, there's a lot of developers, obviously, who work jobs and get a paycheck, but who also... Uh, make money from their side projects on their own. So it's kind of an independent source of income for them. Uh, so it's kind of a broad umbrella. I mean, it includes bootstrappers, but there's also companies on the website that have raised money. It includes people who are, you know, making an in- income independently of having a job, but it also includes people who are working a job as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The indie as the shorthand for independent, I actually uh, had forgotten that is the origin of the word indie. <laughs> um, yeah. So these businesses are pretty awesome. Some of them are, are really useful and yet I had never heard of them. So Submit Hub, for example, this is some company that makes, what was it like uh, 25K a month or something? 40, 46K a month. 40, 46K a month. And it's kind of like A LinkedIn for musicians, sort of like a like a. It allows you to send like LinkedIn in mail for to to record labels and music distributors. Uh, And I clicked on that, and I'm a hobbyist musician, and I converted the first time I was using it. Uh, So I was like, well, this is an awesome business. This definitely makes sense for me as a musician. So why hadn't I heard of this business before? It was totally useful to me. Um, is there some problem in the market that, is, that prevents uh, you know, the average indie hacker from getting their project, which may be extremely useful, connected with the target customer?
1: Yeah, I think marketing is a really big challenge for any business. And in, in the case of SubmitHub in particular, you probably haven't heard of it because it's only been around since... Last December, I believe Jason started working on it last year. I mean, his blog, Andy Shuffle, had been around for quite a long time, for over a decade. But he didn't start working on SubmitHub until December. He started charging for it in February, I believe. And in ten months since then, he's ramped up the revenue to forty-six thousand dollars a month, which is huge. Um, but to talk about what you were saying earlier, when I first started Andy Hackers, I kind of predicted that there were going to be a ton of these types of companies making anywhere from a few thousand dollars a month to a hundred thousand dollars a month that none of us had ever heard of, just because it's really hard for them to get press. Um, If you go on TechCrunch or any of the big tech blogs, they generally want to write about companies that have done things in the traditional Silicon Valley way, which is to raise a lot of money from venture capitalists, to have um, an accelerator like Y Combinator backing you, and then they'll write about you. But if you're just kind of a developer making money on your own, a lot of these tech blogs are like, okay, what's the story here? We don't care. And so they, you don't get published and people don't hear about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is curious. And I think the prototypical person who is a, is is a great example of the indie hacker type is this guy, Peter Levels. He's the guy who created Nomad List. And I think he's created a bunch of other little projects and You know, it's it is funny because I think he talks a lot about this idea of bootstrapping, making a small business. I mean, but it's not actually it doesn't actually have to be small. It's interesting because it's small in terms of the amount of people working on it. But given the fact that we have these incredible software tools now that allow for one person to have such a massive leverage, you really can get a lot of scale out of one, maybe two people.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Peter Levels is actually like a huge part of the inspiration for indie hackers. Uh, it totally would not exist if he hadn't done what he's done with Nomadlist. Um, and to get into that, I'd have to get into the entire origin story. But it's totally true that you know in the world of today with all of the SaaS tools that we have and all the different technologies we have that can amplify the output and the productivity of a single person. Uh, these aren't necessarily small businesses. Like I think the biggest one on indie Hackers that I've had so far, especially in terms of like the ratio of money to employees, is Park.io, which is one guy making $125,000 a month. And I'm sure there's other people out there just like him. Um, so it's really interesting. These aren't necessarily small businesses, but they're small in terms of the number of people working on them. And it's just inspiring to read about one person kind of eschewing the traditional way of making money not necessarily going out and getting a job and doing it on his own using skills that a lot of us probably have and achieving like such huge levels of success. Now, Peter Levels as you mentioned is also, you know, a similar guy. He if you go to his Twitter profile, he lists all of his different projects and exactly how much money each one of them is making a month and I think it's something like 40 or 50,000 dollars total and he barely spends time maintaining any of them at this point.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned park.io which Handles, quote, domain back orders for hackers, which I I I think I read that interview briefly, but I didn't quite understand what it did. But in any case, like, these are extremely specific businesses. And I think it's quite interesting that people continually, well, I mean, certainly not the hackers that are creating this underestimate this, but many people underestimate the long tail, how, how much money there can be in the long tail what why is that why do we continue to underestimate the long tail why do we continue to misevaluate how valuable a seemingly small problem can be
1: it's funny that you say that even the, you know the, the hackers might not underestimate it because in my experience just talking to people about running the site hackers are most often the people who underestimate it i think just because a lot of us are habituated to the kind of reasoning where it's like okay I can make that myself so therefore it must not be worth very much. Um, when in reality like most people in the world aren't programmers um, and if you build a useful service that actually solves a valuable problem that they have which is a lot easier said than done but if you can do that they will gladly pay you 10 20 50 depending on what you made a few hundred dollars a month for your solution and there are so many people online now that that could easily sustain your lifestyle. Why do we underestimate that? I think it kind of goes back to the messaging that we receive from from the startup and the developer community right if you think about popular businesses and popular projects started by developers then names that come to mind are all uniform companies you know it's slack and airbnb and, and github and gigantic companies that are doing hundreds of millions in revenue and it's just really not very much written about people who are doing much less, less than that but you don't need to make 100 million dollars a year to have an impact on your life you know if you can quit your job and make ten thousand dollars a year from a project that you've made that's amazing you know if you could supplement your income and not quit your job and make a couple thousand dollars uh a month from a project that you're working on that's also amazing and and life-changing in many circumstances so i think uh really there's just not that much out there and i think that's one of the things that i'm hoping to accomplish with nd hackers is is to show people that hey this is like a real valid way uh to live as a person, as, and as a programmer, or even not as a programmer. There's lots of non-programmers on the site who've who started businesses, but this is an actual valid path that you could take, and it's totally possible to succeed.
0: Indeed, and I think to some people who may look at the site, they may see it as shocking, and I think it is, it, I think it was shocking even to me that, I mean, uh, we're living in very unique times, and and when we talk about these types of SaaS tools that make it so easy to build projects, whether we're talking about Trello or Slack, I think one of the the big drivers that uh, we constantly underestimate is the fact that on the supply side, we've got this massive increase in ease of use with Amazon Web Services, and on the demand side, we've got massive increase in user demand thanks to the growth of mobile, and... This supply and demand increase um, has just it, uh, is really, really easy to underestimate how big of a force this is and how big of a source of leverage it can be for any sort of developer out there and it's it's just it's counterintuitive because it's it's definitely it definitely runs contrary to any notions of efficient market hypothesis. Efficient market hypothesis is like, oh yeah, if 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 there's a problem out there in the world to be solved, it's already been solved. There's nothing new for you to do. But obviously in practice we realize that it's very much not the case. Um, So, you know, uh, you mentioned also I'm very intrigued by the idea of like non hackers building indie hacker type businesses and one of the biggest businesses on indiehackers.com is Symantria which is this scalable sentiment analysis API I think this doesn't this company make something like what 100k a month or 150k a month yeah
1: 150k a month uh it made I'm pretty sure he sold it. it started by Oleg and I'm pretty sure he ended up selling it but he was doing a lot of revenue and he couldn't code at all
0: Right. So how did he build that business? How And how do people build businesses when they are non-coders?
1: Yeah, not being a programmer, I think, is, is definitely a bigger challenge. Um, and the vast majority of the interviews on the site are created by people who are programmers. Um, but usually it turns out that they find a partner who's a programmer um, to work with them. And I think most of the non-programming interviews on the site are done by people who are not solo founders, or people who've taken on partners, Um Specifically, with with Symantria, he spent, I believe, a lot of time working at another company. Uh, he was like a marketing and a sales guy, and he was coming up with ideas effectively while he was working at that company. And using the knowledge that he was acquiring, the domain knowledge he was acquiring to figure out, okay, what is it that I want to work on? And he ended up just outsourcing the development uh, of Symantria with some guys that he met, I think, uh, who lived in the Ukraine, and they helped him build the product. So. Really, if you're not a programmer, it's it's a lot harder, I think. You're going to have to depend on other people in some ways, but that's also kind of a blessing in disguise because it means you're more likely to work together with another co founder. Uh, I'm actually writing like a blog post right now about how I work on indie hackers alone. And I was crunching some numbers in the interviews yesterday, and it's in total I've done sixty one interviews, and I think about forty eight of them or something, forty nine, are a single founder company. So most of the people I interview are single founders. But if you look at the median income of the single founder companies versus the median income of the ones with co-founders, it's something like $2,000 a month versus $17,000 a month. Like It's hugely advantageous to have a co-founder. Um, so I think in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, yeah, if you can't code, that's an obstacle that stands in front of you. But if you find a co-founder who you work well with, then chances are you'll have a better outcome.
0: Yeah, and I think that is certainly supported by the y-combinator evidence or at least i mean i think that their i mean their requisites one of their you know big bars is like it's really hard to get into y-combinator if you have a one-person company um and uh yeah so okay that's very interesting that you found such strong supporting evidence
1: yeah i should mention that it's it's not exactly a scientific analysis. I mean, I'm just looking at the interviews that I've done on the site. And there's all sorts of other possible explanations. For example, if you have a co-founder, you're less likely to spend time working on, like, a small side project, and you're more likely to aim your sites high, right? It's hard to convince somebody to work with you on something that, at most, can make a few hundred dollars a month. But if you work with someone else, you're probably going to try to at least make a few thousand dollars a month. And so I think... It's not simply that having a co founder makes things easier, but it also means that you probably are a little bit more ambitious.
0: Regarding the non coders contracting out work or hiring people to do work, well, I guess specifically contracting, is contracting getting easier? Because I'm, I'm working on a project right now with a contractor, and basically because I spend all of my time on this podcast, but I, I have some product ideas, and so I contract them out. I think I probably have it a little bit easier than a non-coder because I can specify what I want done to the contractor in more detail. I can accurately assess what price I would want to pay and what I should pay. I actually think this is something that people who are working at a job could do more aggressively. Like, if, you, if you're if you an engineer at Google or Facebook or whatever and you have this giant income... You can contract a project for pretty cheap, and all you have to do is really, like, make a spec for it and kind of describe what you need. Is that process getting easier? Is the process of contracting out software development work, whether you are a non-coder or a coder, kind of two different questions, but is that getting easier? Because we have these reputation platforms like Upwork and Fiverr. These types of things can kind of do the Uberization or the Airbnbization where you get the flywheel spinning faster because you have reputation?
1: Yeah, so my perspective into this is pretty limited because I've actually never hired a contractor, but I've done a lot of contract work. In fact I've never had a full-time job. I've either always been working on projects of my own or are acting as a consultant or a contractor. And I've always seen it as there's kind of two sides. There's the you can use one of these marketplaces like Upwork, which I've never done and nor have I ever tried to source work from there. And From what I understand, you generally are going to get a slightly lower quality of developer. Or you can kind of use your network and word of mouth to find good developers who you can hire for contract roles, and it'll be a little bit easier. That being said, I'd be very surprised if contracting isn't getting easier. I mean, I think all of these websites have been around for quite some time, and they've had a lot of time to improve. And like you mentioned earlier, there's just so many more tools that make the individual programmer more productive that I would be shocked if, if... The level of contractor that you can find today isn't better, cheaper, and faster than what you could find 10 years ago. Um, I actually saw a stat on Twitter, I can't remember who posted it, but it was yesterday, and it was a pretty credible stat saying that 25% of all of today's web developers started in the last four years, which is mind-blowing, That's like a huge number of of web developers, right? A lot of people write in JavaScript and HTML. a lot of those people are probably living abroad, not necessarily in the United States. A lot of them are probably contracting. you know. So I think that supply side, in terms of finding programmers to do work for you, that's only going to get better. And that means you'll probably have a lot better programmers to choose from. And like you said, if you're a programmer yourself, if you're working at Google or you're working at some other company and you know a little bit about code at least, it's going to be way easier for you to specify your requirements and to figure out you know, who's good and who's not and get something built. So I think and the future, we'll see a lot more programmers who aren't necessarily quitting their jobs, who are still building projects on the side with the help of other programmers, um, and that's really cool. I think that's awesome. One thing, one caveat to that, and I kind of hinted at earlier, is that a lot of times programmers are we're kind of mistrustful of other programmers. It's really attractive for us to build things ourselves a lot, and that's something you see in a lot of the interviews in and indie hackers. There's a lot of times where people could contract out work or do something for cheap and they do it themselves just because they're able to and they say i'm not going to pay somebody a thousand dollars to build this thing that i can whip up myself in a day so i think that stops a lot of people but as contracting becomes easier um hopefully we'll see more programmers looking at it you know it's something that i could do myself as well because i built everything for many hackers pretty much from scratch
0: yeah no uh, and i think it's can be hard also for not only is there the not built here or whatever you want to call that syndrome where. You're an engineer. You know you can build something, and so you have a, an unconscious, or you you have a just a bias towards not wanting to outsource work that you feel capable of doing yourself, even though it would be higher leverage. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think. Many developers, I think developers would also benefit from the contracting process just because it would force them to develop management skills, would force them to work with other people. But um, anyway, not to go on the contracting thread for too much longer. Um, You have been doing these interviews for a while. You said you've done 65, which is awesome. It's a lot. 61. 61, okay. What are the patterns that you've noticed? What is the roadmap for building one of these indie businesses?
1: Yeah, there's like a pretty common pattern. Um, The questions that I ask all all of the developers and the founders are pretty much the same, because I want to be able to to extract these patterns. And the first one I always ask is, how did you get started, right? How did you come up with the idea for your business? And how did you decide that this is what you wanted to work on, as opposed to any other idea out there? And almost 100% of the time, it's People building something that they themselves need, which is something that also like Y Combinator and Paul Graham have, have supported. Um, people have problems that they run into in the course of living their daily lives, or usually in the course of running some business. And as a programmer, they're like, okay, well, I could solve this problem, right? No one's solving this, I could do it myself. And they build something and end up, you know, slapping a price tag on it and making money. So I think the first step usually involves identifying some sort of problem that you understand well and that you have yourself. There have been a lot of companies, like I won't say a lot, but some companies where the founder specifically set out to uh, to find an idea. They didn't organically come up with an idea and ironically, I did that for indie Hackers itself. Um, but then even then, they end up stumbling upon often some problem that they had themselves. For example, Park.io, that's the one started by Mike Carson. He does $125,000 in revenue every month and it's domain backorders. And his entire story started because he wanted to get a di- uh, .io domain name. He saw the expiration date, and he rigged up a little script that would automatically purchase a domain name when it became available. Uh, turned out that his script was too slow it missed it, and he got frustrated, so he set to work basically improving his script to make it better so it wouldn't miss uh, domains in the future. And after a while, he realized, like, hey, this is, like, I'm not the only person who wants to buy domain names. Like maybe I could sell my script to other people uh, who don't have time to spend building you know, scripts like I have, and he charges 100 bucks, you know, per domain name for whatever you want him to grab for you, and he'll get it. And now he's making a ton of money. So I think it's very often that people start off with a problem that they have, and then they realize that they're not alone in the world.
0: So Peter Levels said you have to develop thick skin because you get hate for making a paid online service i think this is in some ways like a vestige of the open source movement where it is uh you know considered perhaps taboo to charge for stuff um and at the same time on the opposite side of the spectrum you have people like sam altman and ben horowitz who have said that you really have to like you know they have portfolio companies because they're um, investors, And they have said that they really have to encourage their companies to charge higher prices. So, you know, not only do you have to build thick skin to charge for stuff in the first place, it is tricky to say, I mean, this is my experience as a podcast advertiser, too, going to advertisers and saying, hey, you should pay me for advertising. It's almost like it's, you know, I don't know if it's an innate shyness or something, but it's hard to well up the Uh, the ability to say that but it's also hard to just raise prices and saying you know this thing that at this point doesn't really cost me any marginal cost i'm going to charge you more for it (laughs) um and you know it's it's so interesting It, it uh that you know sam altman and ben horowitz have said that's the like the biggest piece of advice that they give to their businesses with traction what are the right tactics to finding that correct price for your business
1: yeah, that's a really tough question. I can tell you that uh, raising prices is probably the most often cited way that companies I've interviewed have, have <laughs> increased their revenue. <laughs> it's not. It's not adding features. It's not. Hey, am, am
0: I am I right that that's been like a trend that started to emerge over the past year or so, where people when people are like talking about building business, like yeah, just raise prices. That's the trick. <laughs> it really one, works one really weird, well. Um, one weird trick to grow your business.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, I think the, the thing is that we just inherently undervalue our work. You know, we see kind of how the sausage is made. We're the ones doing it. And we're a little bit, I think, shy that, I mean, not shy, but a little bit nervous that people aren't going to pay for the stuff that we're making, you know. And it's, you kind of want to be nice and you want people to like you. And so you put no price tag on it, which is, which is happens a lot and it shouldn't. Or you put a very small price tag on something. And there's a ton of room for growth, especially if you're selling to business. Um, What I found also, I did another analysis earlier, is that the companies on any hackers that sell to other businesses make a lot more money than the companies that sell to consumers. And consumers are a lot more price sensitive. Like If you have a business and you're constantly making money and spending money and hiring employees and someone comes around and says, hey, I can help you grow your Twitter audience by 300%, you're just like, okay, well, here's a couple hundred dollars. That seems like it's worth it to me and you don't even think about it, you know? Uh, But if you're a person, you know, an individual and someone's telling you like, hey, I've got a task manager that can save you a few hours a day, it's really hard to value your time and, you know, in a monetary way. And so I think consumers are a lot more loath to spend money. Um, And so I found that the companies that sell to businesses make more money and they usually can get away with continually raising their prices because businesses just have a lot more money to spend, especially if you're solving a really valuable problem.
0: And the person who is spending that money may have their income de- decoupled from how much money right. they it's spend. Right. Like it's not
1: personally painful for them to, yeah. to spend what, you know, the money on your product. To answer your other question in terms of like having the other thing you mentioned in terms of having thick skin, what I found really interesting is that I've submitted probably four or five different interviews that I've done to Hacker News. And I don't know if it's just Hacker News or if it's the world in general, but there's like always a lot of really negative comments. You know, there's supportive comments and people who say, this is awesome, I love what you're doing. But for the Park IO interview, for example, about half the comments in the thread were people who were bitter that he was making so much money or they didn't like his business model, he was charging too much, or he was a domain squatter and ruining the world for everyone. So I think having thick skin is really important because people are constantly going to say negative things about you. And it hurts a lot more when it's something that you've spent hours and hours, months or years building. You know, if it's something you poured your heart and soul into and people have said negative things about it, it really sucks. And when people say positive things about it, it's like amplified tenfold because you're the one who built it compared to working at like someone else's company. So I think having thick skin matters uh, quite a lot, especially if you're going to be a transparent company who shares your revenue with people and shares, you know, your tech stack and the decisions that you're making.
0: Whenever I see those types of comments on Hacker News, and I'm this is kind of a speculative comment here, but I always imagine somebody who is sitting at a job that they hate, and they're not doing work, and they're just going to <laughs> Hacker News because they're at some terrible corporate job that they don't like, and they don't know how to escape it, and the bitterness from seeing something like Park.io, this guy who's making a bunch of money from a project that he made on his own... That bitterness emerges from the person sitting at the corporate job, refreshing Hacker News every five minutes, because <laughs> it's it's essentially out of um, envy. Yeah, and, I think so. And, and it's 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 kind of sad. It sucks. It's sad to me. Um, you know, I just remember corporate jobs when I was working. Um, I just I would always feel at these corporate jobs. I would always feel like this is there's no way this is the right way to. Make money. There's no way this is the right way to live my life, and and yet there are so many people who are working these jobs, and and it, that was something that made it very hard to leave, um, and and it would also make it hard to discuss. You know, you talk to your coworkers, you're and you're like. You know, it really seems like there's still a lot of value in this internet thing. Like maybe maybe we shouldn't be sitting here in these desks where we have fixed upside and uh, and four hundred one k like where that doesn't really make any sense. Why would you ever want to retire as a programmer? Um, and but but you know you're just surrounded by these people who are pressuring you to think this way, and it toxifies your own thinking. And and then you become a commenter on Hacker News.
1: <laughs> That's how it happens. Yeah, I I think there's there's all sorts of reasons and envy is definitely a really big one and hopefully we're moving toward a world where uh, where more people realize that hey, like there's multiple options for how you want to live your life and how you want to you know provide for yourself and that you know But don't we're have
0: blessed to. because we we're in a time where it's so easy for us and we're kind of coming at it with fresh eyes cuz we're mm-hmm. a little bit younger than the average person. Oh, yeah, these we're companies. very lucky.
1: But there are a lot of developers who are in a, maybe a similar position to you and I who who might be stuck in a job that they don't like, you know, and who might not see it as an option to just go off and do their own thing. I actually saw that a lot as a contractor. Um, I would primarily work for startups, like well-funded startups that were pretty small. And I would talk to a lot of the other developers there who were perhaps working full-time jobs. And a lot of them really liked their jobs um, for understandable reasons. And some of them didn't like their jobs. And I would ask them why and they would talk about not having the freedom that they want or not having the upside that they want. Uh, and there's just a lot of misinformation about, or ignorance, I should say, lack of information about like how they could use their skills as a programmer to make their own money. You know, like they would read these super crazy success stories of somebody made a you know Flappy Bird or some other app and made you know millions of dollars overnight, and they would say, "Well, that just seems like a total huge risk, and I don't know what to do." So, I think with any hackers, I'm, I'm hoping to show people that there's another path forward, and that. Yeah, we could talk about the Park.io's of the world who are making millions of dollars, but there's tons of businesses that are making much less than that, much easier than that, and are still really attractive opportunities.
0: Well, and by the way, the notion of risk, that is one of the big perversions in this, This uh, what keeps more people from making the jump or working on projects or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter if an individual project fails because you, Not at all. Generally, you generally spend, like, near zero dollars <laughs> like spinning it up working on it you always learn something from it uh-huh. so like in a sense it's it's always your your trajectory is always upward there's never like a regression you never work on a project and you're like wow it sucks i unlearned a bunch of stuff during I, that project i just got
1: so much dumber working on this it's, right
0: <laughs> right exactly so the trajectory is always up there's no failure um ugh, I don't know. You know, I thought we said about the the B2B stuff, about the companies making more money selling to businesses. I think that's that's interesting, and it's a promising trend because I think what indie hackers is a harbinger of is the idea that there are just so many more opportunities for small businesses, and there are an increasing number of quote-unquote entrepreneurs, like people who are just making money on their own, and these types of people are increasingly susceptible to buying quote-unquote b2b services because they see you know when you're working on your own on a business then you really quickly start to see the value of your time and when you start to see the the monetary value of your time you start to look at products that save you time as arbitrage opportunities where you can just easily make money by purchasing time and many of these things on indie hackers are like things where you're essentially buying time for yourself. Um, so it seems like, I think, you know, this is like the beginning. We're just really in the early days of these types of businesses.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of the most successful companies that I've interviewed are the ones that have figured out how to use these, these services that save you time, uh, and the most efficient ways, for example, Zapier, which is kind of like this API to API connecting tool, so you can hook up unrelated tools to each other and have like one action on Facebook automatically trigger an action in your GitHub or whatever. Like that is super time saving, and it lets you automate huge parts of your business. Like what one thing Mike Carson said when he was running, who uh, ran Park.io, is that he feels like he has fifty employees because he's automated so many parts of his domain servers that he could just walk away and it's still going to work. Um, Another guy I interviewed is one of my friends who did Y Combinator together years ago, Chris Chen, and he has a company, Insta Painting. And I just updated his interview this morning, but he essentially has this marketplace connecting painters to customers. So you upload a photo, uh, a painter somewhere in the world gets your photo, paints a picture of it using watercolors or charcoal or whatever you want, and then sends it to you. And Chris himself is completely removed from this entire process. It started off with him completely controlling everything. And over the last three years, he's completely automated everything. Uh, and so he can actually take time to work on stuff that grows his business. You know, he's happy to pay 50, 100, however much dollar, however much it costs for these services and save him time, uh, which, like you said, opens up opportunities for people to build stuff like this. Uh, I think it's only going to get better in the future and there's only going to be more opportunities to build businesses. And it's easy to get stuck in this mindset that, oh, hey, everything that's already, you know, that can be done has already been done. You know, everything that's popular is already popular. But a lot of, niches and a lot of markets are not winner-take-all at all. Like You can exist with competitors and still make more than enough money to sustain your lifestyle, and you can improve on people before you have built. You don't even have to have that original of an idea. I can't remember exactly what interview it was, but I interviewed one guy, and his whole philosophy was like, yeah, I just look at stuff that's been built that's kind of crappy, and then I just do a much better job. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's making like $13,000 a month from like a form builder <laughs> that he put online. So... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of
0: opportunities. Interesting, yeah. Uh, insta-painting, very cool business. And I think one, you know, that kind of reveals the insta-painting pattern. That is where you you look at something and you're like, here is a process that looks kind of hard to automate. It hasn't been automated yet. Mm-hmm. And you start by doing it in a very manual fashion where you say, okay, upload a photo and, and uh, this service will turn it into a painting. And then that's and then all you have to do is build the photo uploader. And then on the back end, you do all the work. You like figure out how to connect that. You know, figure out how to connect to a painter in in China. There mm-hmm. are these painters. Uh, I think the painters aren't in Shenzhen, are they?
1: I think not. Well, I think now he's got painters all over the world. Like he even has painters okay. in America. Oh, but he started okay. off with just like painters in China.
0: Yeah, there's some specific place in China where you can go and you can get something painted. Very like. Very rigorously to spec. Um, But, like, you know, the insta painting model, you know, initially you have to do all that legwork yourself. And then over time you start to realize patterns and the types of legwork you're doing. And then gradually you build up small pieces of automation to augment yourself through that process. And over time you turn a very manual process into a completely automated process by stitching together things like Zapier and Trello and, and whatever, if this, then that stuff to automate the entire process.
1: And I think uh, it's interesting, like before working on Indie hackers I didn't have I had this kind of list of project ideas that I could work on. But since and I would add to it, you know, every like month or so if I got an idea, I would add it to the list. But since starting to work on Indie Hackers, I'm getting like new ideas every other day, it feels like, of just stuff that I wish was automated and there's no service out there that automates it.
0: So uh, you know we talked a bit about pricing many companies get to monopoly pricing through network effects but when I look at your site, it seems like a lot of these businesses are one thing that I notice is interesting about them is that they don't require a network effect like they' they' so many of them seem like businesses where there is not a network effect requirement and so they they find monopoly pricing, by virtue of the fact that nobody else is doing what they're doing. Park.io, for example, is like nobody else was doing it. So it's something very niche. Uh, and you can charge high prices for it, but it doesn't require a network effect. So there's no chicken and egg. You just tell people about it, and you're just like, here's this thing where I'm gonna save you time and money. You should use it. Is that your fine is that consistent with your findings that these are these tend these indie businesses tend to not be network effect required? Requ- yeah, that's requiring? totally
1: consistent. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they're first and foremost trying to make money. And I think the, the network effect phenomenon, kind of like the viral growth uh, pattern, is really popularized by, by sites like Facebook and Twitter and kind of the more traditional VC-funded startup you know paradigm. Um, I think when it comes down to making money, like the first and foremost thing that you want to do is solve a problem that people are willing to pay for, like ideally today. Uh, Chris Chen for example when he created insta painting I think he made two thousand dollars in his first couple of weeks uh, just because he's, he made something that people were willing to pay for instantaneously that was his entire focus like he was in debt and he needed to make money right now whereas like you know you watch the Facebook movie or something and it's Mark Zuckerberg talking about how he doesn't want to put ads on his site because making money is not cool a billion users is cool you know uh, I think those are two very different ways to grow your company and There's really, unfortunately, not as much information out there for helping people to build money, uh, build companies that generate revenue.
0: I think this pattern made a lot more sense. So it made a lot of sense in early days of the Internet when it cost a lot of money to start a business and you had to raise money. Uh, You know, you've got to buy those expensive servers. Uh, And then maybe it made more sense also in Web 2.0 when you've still got all these great opportunities for network effects. Businesses... But now you've got all these people online, you've got these network effects businesses already in place that you can use as platforms to build your next business, and it raises the question, can, are we going to see some giant companies in the near future that do not raise any money?
1: We certainly will. There was an article, I think, on the New York Times last week, week before last, about MailChimp. And they're like a great example of a company that didn't raise money and is doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And they just did it, like, I don't want to say the old-fashioned way, but like, (laughs) you know, they just acquired customers, built a great product, raised prices, and grew, you know, they bootstrapped themselves. It's still, like, the fact that doing that is in and of itself enough to get you a huge profile in the New York Times means that it's still somewhat rare, but I think it's something that we're going to see a lot more of as it becomes easier to do when people realize that, like, hey, I probably don't need to give up 30 50 you know, 70% of my company into a venture capitalist to build something uh, successful.
0: As that happens, I think we're going to see it very soon. I think in the next five or ten years, we'll have, like, the first non-VC unicorn company – Although I guess we won't even have a metric to call it a unicorn because they're not even going to raise money. Right. So when, when are they going to get a valuation? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you think we're going to see more mechanisms for raising money? Like I think debt. I Like I would love, you know, if I were starting a a, a, bus- a small business today and I saw an opportunity to grow with more money, but I didn't want to give up any equity, I would love to raise debt. I would love to raise debt from very intelligent investors so you could have some of the effects of venture capital where you get the like kind of good advice and stuff maybe some services or something but you get you you get debt rather than equity do you think we'll see a rise of debt
1: i think so um so i talked to this guy bryce he runs a venture capital firm called nd.vc and i'd heard about them but he reached out to me i think over twitter and i met with him and he's basically a venture capitalist that like his model is to invest in companies that are making money right now. And it's kind of like the whole indie hackers phenomenon, like invest in companies that you might see on my website. Um, and it's just a total, it's completely different than what other VCs are doing. And we'll see how it works out. But the fact that he, someone like him can exist, like his homepage is literally a picture of a unicorn on fire. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what model he, he invests in. Maybe he uses debt, maybe he uses something else. But I think it's definitely the case that as this business model becomes more popular and that more people start doing this that investors are going to have to find new instruments and better ways to invest so that they can still you know provide value and get into deals but I would yeah personally love to to be able to raise you know money without giving up a ton of equity in my company you know and a lot of the companies on indie hackers would grow a lot faster if they had money to, to hire employees etc I mean there's a point to raising money but I think the model that we have for doing it right now is not ideal for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and I wonder how that's going to propagate to the the hiring structure, too. Like, if you stop giving equity to venture capitalists, maybe you stop giving equity to your employees as well. You just pay them a really, really nice salary. Like, I think another big misconception we have is the idea that you need to, if you're an employee, you need to be receiving equity in the company in order to have skin in the game uh, maybe true to some extent, but anyway, that's 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 a little – that's more of a far-flung conversation. I mean it's, um, it's
1: it's something I would like to say like something – because it's another thing I saw when I was contracting. Like, when I was contracting, almost every company I contracted for was eventually like, hey, do you want equity? And it's not that I didn't believe in these companies. It was more that like I felt like I could do a good job and I didn't need equity and I'd rather be compensated in cash. And most of those startups no longer exist. Most of the employees who work there, their equity was worth zero. And the cash that I got is still worth something, obviously. So I think it's not necessarily a bad thing if we kind of get away from this this model that every early startup employee needs to be paid with equity. you know
0: Now you went through Y Combinator prior to indie hacker, you were working on a different business. Now that you've seen how the Y Combinator system works, and then you've also seen the indie hacker side of things. How do these indie hacker businesses compare to the Y Combinator businesses?
1: Okay, let's, say, let's put it this way. The vast majority of businesses in both cases fail. It's a little bit harder for me to have the kind of insight that an accelerator like Y Combinator has because YC takes pretty much whoever they think is good. And then a lot of them, those companies will just die without making any money or having any impact at all. Whereas for indie hackers, I kind of have a filter, and so I only take companies that have like achieved some measure of success, even if that's only a couple hundred bucks a month for the founder. Um, there are certainly tons and tons of people who've gone the indie hackers route, made no money whatsoever, uh, and quit, and I've never even heard about them, and they never reached out to me. Um, with that being said, I think in both situations, the default is is failure. It's really hard to build value from nothing, uh, but I think in the indie hacker situation, the you kind of have like I don't want to call it a safety net, but like your your fallback is a lot better. Right? You end up learning a lot in both situations. But if your goal from the outset is to make money, then a lot of times, like worst case scenario, you end up with this thing that's like making you a little bit of money on the side. And who doesn't want that? Um, if you've raised a bunch of money from from any sort of source, chances are you're not going to be able to continue indefinitely just making a couple thousand dollars a month. Like you're going to have to shut your business down. At some point, um, so I think that's really the biggest difference. In terms of advantages for the YC model, I think there's they're going to have a lot more unicorns. Like if you want to grow a company to five hundred million dollars in revenue in three years, you probably need to raise money from somebody so you can hire the number, uh, the huge numbers of employees and the huge advertising budget and marketing budget that you're going to need to do something like that. So I think if you're okay not making a billion dollars, like it's totally makes sense to go the Andy Hacker route. And if your whole goal, like maybe you're already financially pretty set, then maybe it makes more sense to raise a ton of money.
0: I think where things are going to go is the YC. YC is going to get better and better at incubating these really, really hard businesses, perhaps businesses that require policy changes, heavy litigation businesses, um, you know, businesses that require a ton of money to build Marketplaces like you know, Face Facebook right just required servers to build the network effects. But then you have these like real life businesses like Airbnb, which obviously takes money to build the network effects. And there's going to be more and more of that. And that is where I think something like Y Combinator is really really useful, where you have that support and you've got the people who you got people from all kinds of different disciplines and government and stuff that can help you out. Um that is the direction I think that, that things are gonna go in. And and then and you will be able to build a billion dollar business as an indie hacker, but you're not gonna be able maybe not be able to build a a billion dollar like um I don't know, teleportation company or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, or like a
1: medical devices company or something. <laughs> right.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't like would you really want your your uh, heart rate monitor built by a, a company that classified itself as an indie hacker business?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think a lot of businesses, you know, there's this kind of interesting crossover point where a lot of businesses start off, you know, using this indie hacker model, and then at some point there's a breakthrough, and they say, okay, now I want to go raise a ton of money, and I think make the transition to this other type of business, which is totally valuable, uh, and I think oftentimes more advantageous because you end up giving up less, smaller percentage of your company. Uh, but, yeah, I totally agree with the way that the y c is doing things and the impact that they're gonna have like they've been investing in some like really hard companies lately doing all sorts of things that are would be almost impossible to do. It's just one guy without a lot of financial support
0: yeah and and they're doing this research stuff, which I think like is a great investment like I think that's really, really a great investment. It's not like philanthropic i mean maybe they're cl- maybe they call it philanthropic or something, but like you know, if basic income is a thing, then it's going to be important to know about basic income. If you want to invest in businesses that are affecting basic income or are affected by basic income, like the basic income research, what a great investment.
1: No, it's amazing. And it's it's like to your point, like if basic income becomes a big thing, it's hard to imagine a business that won't be affected by it. You know, like how do you how do you hire if if, if everybody is getting some sort of basic income? Like how do you sell to people? What How do prices change? Um it's this is just a lot, so I think it's awesome what they're doing. I think they're really forward-looking, and of course their whole you know investment model is that they want to find the unicorns, right? They want to find the companies that are going to be worth billions, and that that's worth risking lots of failures to find.
0: Explain what you were doing before Indie Hackers.
1: Okay, um, I was so I did YC in 2011, the company called Task Force. Uh, it didn't really work out. We were making a few thousand dollars a month, but at that time, we were completely focused on we need to get to you know millions of users, and this is not big enough. So we pivoted into another idea that also failed, and I ended up just doing contract work for three years. Uh, so this is what I alluded to earlier when I said I was doing lots of contract work for startups. Um, I'm a web developer, front-end web developer, but kind of full stack. I can do some back-end coding to you and some sysadmin as well. So I spent three years doing that and kind of just, I don't know the right word for it, maybe recovering. I just wanted a break from the startup lifestyle of working 12 hours a day, which I had been doing uh, beforehand. And then I started working on Taskforce again. So I ended up buying Taskforce from my old co-founder and my goal was kind of to run it as some sort of revenue generating passive income project for myself uh, while I was doing contract work. So I did this for probably about a year and a half and I didn't make much progress and eventually decided that I needed to work on something totally different. Not because Task Force couldn't have been a success like I think I could have easily gotten it to a few thousand dollars a month, but because I didn't think that it was it would have as much impact as starting over from scratch with a totally better idea.
0: Now, I like the attitude because there never in your description there did I hear something like, and then I decided I was going to lie in bed depressed for two weeks and write a <laughs> post about it. You're just like, yeah, it's time to move on to the next project. Was there any notion? Did you feel any notion of depression or like sense of failure or like, you know, feeling like uh, maybe I'm not cut out for this or were you just like, well, you know, it's still an inevitability that I'm going to find a project, project human fit or whatever you want to call it.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, it depends how you define failure. But the way I define it, at least, is that like I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish, you know, And, and that like. Everything that I've done has been basically a failure. I started a startup out of college that ran out of money my and you know task force never hit the goals that I wanted Siasto, the other project I worked on never hit the goals that I wanted. Contracting worked out really well. I mean I made a lot of money was able to save was able to save money to work on indie hackers and task force. Um, but yeah like there was never a point where I was depressed. Uh, I think it really helps to have a strong network of people around you who understand what you're doing. And to be really transparent and honest with them about how things were going. Like there's this kind of thing where I was doing my Combinator where like, you would talk to other founders and say, Oh, how are you doing? And like no matter how anyone was doing, everyone would just say, Great, you know, working hard. And they could go home and, you know, their business is going up in flames and they're like, super sad and depressed. I think it's a lot easier when you're transparent and just like, hey, this kind of sucks and it's hard and I'm not sure if I'm gonna work on it anymore because people around you are more supportive. Like My brother, who's my roommate for the last five years, has known everything about every business that I've started, has given me advice, has helped me out when things are doing poorly. My girlfriend is super supportive. Uh, and So I think it's always been kind of easy for me to pick myself up after things have not worked out and been like, okay, well, you know, I knew that was a possibility and I'm still young, you know, I'm 29, I've got plenty of years left in my life. I don't have to be a billionaire tomorrow or something. Uh, so I think it's been pretty easy for me to pick myself up and, and, and try the next thing. You know, and it's not easy for everyone. That everyone has different dispositions. Everyone has different lives. But uh, it's important to realize that failure is a part of the process, and that almost everybody fails.
0: Absolutely. So uh, run right up against time. Do you have an extra like ten or fifteen minutes?
1: Yeah, I've got plenty of time.
0: Okay, cool. So I'm curious about the process of indie hackers because I think in some ways it mirrors my pro. Uh, process of doing interviews and I would love to hear some insight about how you do it um, you you can you conduct all these interviews so so how do you conduct all these interviews what is your strategy what is your pattern you've done 65 interviews since since August I guess
1: mm-hmm.
0: like that's that's a lot I mean I, I I do I do a lot of interviews myself <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you do a done six, I haven't done 65 interviews since August <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's it's a little easier for me because my interviews are so much shorter than yours. You know, you've got like this podcast format, which I think is awesome, and a lot of people have asked me to do a podcast for Indie Hackers, and I'm just like, to be honest, too intimidated at this point. But uh, my process has kind of evolved over time, but not that much, and it's something that like I plan on working on a lot after I take care of some other marketing priorities. But there's pretty much two parts to it. And the first part is like sourcing these interviews because it's not that easy to find. Any hackers company started by you know one or two developers who are profitable, who are also willing to share their revenue numbers and public online for everybody to see. Um, I ended up you know when I started the company scouring Hacker News for like any company that I could see that had ever shared its revenue, and there are all sorts of these ask Hacker News posts where people would share, and then I compiled this giant list of like 140 companies found as many email addresses as I could and then send them. sent them each kind of a personalized email about how cool I thought their business was and how it would be awesome if they were to share what they've already shared, but on my website in a place where everything was together and people could find it easily. Nowadays, like, I'm lucky enough to get a lot of inbound requests. So that part of the interview process is mostly taken care of. I try to get out four new interviews every week uh, in time for my weekly newsletter on Thursday. And I generally end up Getting like three of those organically, and then maybe one of those is somebody that I messaged on Twitter or somebody that agreed to an interview two months ago, and then they kind of you know faded away, and I had to reach back out to them. Uh, in terms of the process itself, it's really simple. I just have a Gmail canned response. So it's an interview template of ten questions, and each question I've got like a whole bunch of different bullet points under it with suggestions for like information they might want to include in their answer. And this is the only part that I ever customize uh, on a per-interview basis. So if I'm uh, you know, interviewing someone who's a really interesting company, I might do a little bit of research on what they're doing, figure out some questions that might pertain to them and no one else, and then I'll slip them into the bullet points under the different questions and then send off the email. Um, by far, the hardest part of the process and the most time-consuming part of the process is like the editing, which I'm sure you do with your podcast as well. But with text, it's a little bit different because... Like sadly, a lot of people who are great at building businesses and great at programming aren't the best at like telling a, an interesting narrative over text with like proper grammar and whatever. So I spent a lot of time editing the interviews, fixing them up to make sure that they're they're high quality because I think that's a huge part of the appeal of the site is that the interviews are actually fun to read and interesting and educational. Um, and so every now and then I have to ask a few follow up questions and then I put it on the site.
0: Yeah, so the about page mentions uh, the about page on hack on indie hackers mentions that you use amazon's affiliate advertising network to mm-hmm. make money mm-hmm. can you explain how that works and how much money you're making
1: <laughs> so i'm making if you go to my blog which i've renamed the timeline i've made this month i just broke a thousand dollars in revenue and it's mostly from sponsors the amazon affiliate link thing is something that i tried and accounts for like a vanishingly small percentage of my revenue and it's basically if a founder says something about like, "Hey, I read this book and it was super helpful during an interview," oh, and, okay, then I, I turn see. it into like an affiliate link, you know, and people click it. Um, it's not bad. I think if like I had enough page views, then it could actually account for something that's like not negligible. But at this point, I don't really.
0: You definitely should get into the podcasting business, and I'll. I, I'm, I'm gonna. Exp- I'll. Exp- I'm happy to uh, to help you uh, get started or, or bootstrap you in any way, just because. I need more podcasts to listen to, and your interviews are <laughs> your interviews are awesome. Uh, I wish they were in audio form. Uh, God, yeah. So um, anyway, we'll take that offline. Uh, what what is uh, what do you what is Indie Hackers built with? What did you use to build it? So I used uh, Ember
1: JS for it's basically a single page app built using Ember.js, which I've been using for the last three years ever since I started contracting. I, I looked at Ember Backbone Angular. And I don't think React was out at the time, so I didn't look at it. And I fell in love with Ember, and I've used it for almost everything. I'm also using Ember Fastboot, because the problem with these single-page apps is that, effectively, your HTML document is pretty much empty. You just deliver this JavaScript payload to the client, and it sits there spinning its wheels for a second or two before it's able to build the page. And a lot of people leave your site in that time. So with Ember Fastboot, it does server-side rendering, so I'm using Node.js and Express, which is cool because uh, TJ Holloway-Chuck, the guy who created Express, actually did an interview for Indie Hackers. Um, but I'm using Express, running Ember Fastboot there. So when you make a request to the website, the server will actually render the page and then you get all the HTML, all the images, all the text instantly on your browser uh, before the front-end code tick in. It's all hosted on different AWS services. I'm using like S3. I'm using Elastic Beanstalk for the server itself, which uses EC2 using CloudFront for the caching and the assets, using Route 53 for the DNS. Um, and other than that, everything else is custom. Like, I built the forum myself from scratch because I didn't want to use any of Discourse or any other pre-built forums. I built the blog myself, and the interviews are pretty simple.
0: Are these indie hackers concentrated in the Bay Area, or are they all over the place? Oh, they're
1: all over the place. They're not even concentrated in the United... Well, okay, I, I think somewhere around 50% of them are in the United States but they're all over the place and I, I think I forgot to mention that's like another part of like the ND hacker name it's like it's you can do this independent of the location that you live in because you don't really need funding from Bay Area investors you could live anywhere and people live in all sorts of different countries people work from home some people build their businesses from like literally their full-time job at their desk <laughs> so I think that people are very, spread out all over the place and they're they're kind of untethered to any particular location
0: now do you have a game plan for how you're how you uh plan to are you trying to turn into a bigger business or are you just sort of like using it as a vessel for like networking like so so or go go ahead yeah i
1: mean it's it's both of those for sure i think okay I can definitely, I'm not sure how much money I can make with any hackers. I think I can definitely get it to the point where it's enough to pay for my rent, pay for my food, and make it easy for me to say, okay, well, what do I want to do now? You know, do I want to keep working on this? Do I want to move into something else? The networking part of it is something that is like, honestly, I totally underestimated how useful and how awesome it would be. Uh, I'm meeting all sorts of really cool people who are experts in different fields, who uh I'll probably always know and be able to connect with as long as I stay in touch over email. So that's awesome. And it's a huge benefit that would make all of this worth it, even if it doesn't work out. Um, but in terms of, of, of revenue, like I've hit $1,000 a month this, this month from sponsors. I've got a few other ideas in the pipeline. And I ideally will hit you know a few thousand dollars a month by early next year, if not the end of this year. Uh, so I totally look at it as a business that I can grow and that I can make money for myself. And I'm documenting all of it on the, the blog, like, so I've got kind of a timeline that says, you know, here's the date that I hit a thousand mailing list subscribers. Here's the date where, you know, I hit this many Twitter followers. And then at the end of every month, I post exactly how much money I made that month and how many, you know, page views or sessions that I got that month. So people can follow along and see what it is that I'm trying to make money and trying to do to make money and to make my business succeed. And I've ended up getting like so much positive feedback for doing this kind of stuff, and so many. People have, have reached out to me and said, like, hey, you know, you're doing this wrong. And if you change this to do this, you can make more money. Um, or, hey, you know, like, I'm a marketing expert. Here's, like, a tip for how you can grow your tip- a Twitter audience. So I think, like, being transparent and open and really just personal and vulnerable and open with people about what you're doing encourages them to help a lot more than it otherwise would.
0: Which is, of course, very meta of you, since that is what the other people you interview are doing with yeah, their it's interviews.
1: Ex- it's extremely meta.
0: Um yeah, uh, I think. Look, speaking personally, I think the the hack of starting a media business when you're a software engineer uh, is is pretty good. Like, I mean, that's you know all those things that you described, like networking and stuff. I have absolutely gotten out of this podcast, and uh, in some ways, you know, you look at the business, you look at the the like the uh, software media. I mean, your my like my podcast is kind of a media business right now, and your your site is kind of a media business right now, there are certainly ways either of those businesses could morph into software companies or, I don't know, social networks or something. But um, even as just a media business, it's such a great hack. I think it's especially a great hack for somebody, I mean, it sounds like you were in this position, but I know speaking personally, when I started this podcast, I was in a position where I had just done so many projects where they were just crap. Like, they started them and they just went nowhere, no success at all, and I knew when I started this podcast, I was like, you know, it's a freaking podcast. It's not software. It You know, I'm not even building, you know, some indie hacker business. I'm building a podcast, but I just need that win. Like, I just need something <laughs> that I know is going to be, like... Something that I know people want or whatever, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think when I started Any hackers too, I was kind of in the same mindset. I was I was doing the research and I had this idea and I thought people are definitely going to want this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if nothing else, I know that some people will come and like it, and like that will feel awesome, and it does.
0: Okay, well, I think that's a that's a great place to wrap up, um, Corland. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great episode. I'm really a big fan of your site, um, and I hope you decide to start a podcast.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I'd love to talk to you about starting a podcast. It would be awesome. And I'm a big fan of your podcast as well. So thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash SEDaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash SEDaily. Thanks again, Symphono.
1: Wow.